It's still in the book of Matthew, but we're outside of the Sermon on the Mount this Sunday and next Sunday. We will be staying in the book of Matthew, but unique passages because of the fact that we are now approaching Holy Week, starting here with uh, Palm Sunday, and then, of course, concluding with Easter, Resurrection Sunday, next Sunday. Still be in Matthew. This morning, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. The passage will be up here on the screen. If you do have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. And there are some blue Bibles scattered in some of the baskets in the seats in front of you, and those are for you as well. If you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, though full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would both convince us this morning of our need for a king and convince us that this is really good news, that the king has come and the king will come again. Encourage us, convict us accordingly. And we ask, Lord, that we would leave here very different people. Lord, may we not experience a rote holy week. May you do something extravagant in our midst so that we would look back on Holy Week 2023 and say, seriously, that God did a unique work among us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Got to be completely honest with you, and I'm sure a lot of you will agree with me when I say that this has been, this has been a really heavy week. It started with the school shooting in Nashville, which has been eating me up, (laughs) seeing tears earlier this week that I haven't seen in a while, partly because I have a daughter around the age of the students who were killed, one of which was the daughter of the lead pastor, as you probably know, of the church where the school is located. And you know, even, even if you are kind of like a jolly silver lining person, this has got to be your kryptonite, right? Kids being harmed at their own school. The evil here is it's just, it's off the charts, and there aren't answers. 
And then there's all of this economic stuff going on. There's banks failing. We're seeing these articles pop up on our news feeds, you know, about what you should do, how you should prepare for a national financial disaster. Uh, and who, who knows how to prepare for that, right? I, I went over to my pantry. I'm like, oh, we do have a very big bag of rice. That's good. We're asking chat, GPT, some leading questions, you know, like the Great Depression wasn't that bad, was it, you know? And pastorally, I know that more than a few of you are dealing with painful and in some circumstances, excruciating life circumstances. You are wrestling with chronic health issues, with medically unclear causes, you're grieving infertility and miscarriages and unexpected marriage difficulties. You're experiencing unrelenting loneliness, sometimes exacerbated by fractured relationships with friends or family. I saw comments this past week on Twitter that the Lord used to clarify what we're going to talk about this morning. In response to, I think it was CBS News updates about the Nashville shooting, somebody posted on Twitter, what did God do for him? him being the pastor whose daughter was killed. What did God do for him? It's very hard to tell, of course, on Twitter if this was a sincere inquiry or something you know, closer to trolling. But regardless, the comment raises a broader question. In circumstances where answers are totally non-existent, and it feels like God has let us down, is there still hope? Are there reasons to continue, as we talked about last week, along the hard path, accessed by a very narrow gate? Well, guess what? In the Lord's timing, Jesus helps us with that hope question as he enters a gate of his own to follow a decidedly difficult path. Or we might put it like this, Palm Sunday gives us at least, it gives us at least two reasons to keep going, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Reason number one, Jesus is the king. Reason number two, the king brings salvation. Jesus is the king, and he brings salvation. Let's start with that first reason. Jesus is the king. As soon as Jesus began his earthly ministry, we're talking about day one, he was effectively making a long journey to Jerusalem. That was always his ultimate destination. And the book of Matthew makes it clear that along the way, Jesus was constant. I mean, he was always talking about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 4, 17, as Jesus began his ministry, his message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 5, 3, blessed, or as we've been seeing throughout our Sermon on the Mount series, flourishing or living well are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and they have a very great reward there. Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 13, the, ki the kingdom of heaven is like, and then you get just a, a ton 
of metaphors in Matthew chapter 13, one of them being that the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that grows larger than all of the garden plants and becomes a tree. And then Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, Jesus put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There's a whole lot we could say about this kingdom, but for our purposes this morning, notice how upside down it is in every possible way. The inbreaking of this kingdom is very inauspicious. I mean, beginning with a lowly birth in Bethlehem, Matthew chapter 2, and a lowly manger, Luke chapter 2, the scale of the kingdom is, at first, like the grain of mustard seed. Entrance into this kingdom is about repentance and humility, and becoming like children, not, you know, girding up your loins and asserting yourself. Belonging to this kingdom does not guarantee earthly prosperity and success. And significant difficulties are, in fact, expected. Yet Jesus still calls his disciples blessed. So it's not all that surprising that as Jesus finally approached Jerusalem, he entered the city in such a lowly, totally upside-down way. He sent two of his disciples to a village ahead of them, where they would find a donkey tied in the colt with her. And Jesus told them, chapter 21, verses 2 and 3, When you find them there, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Kings, here's how they were supposed to arrive. Kings, they were supposed to arrive with, with armies and chariots and horns, especially conquering kings who are looking to establish or expand their kingdom. And being the king, you could pretty much take whatever you wanted to take along the way, livestock, property, to make this modern, you know, vinyl collections, Xboxes. You could take whatever you want. But Jesus showed up, on a donkey colt with this ragtag group of followers. And the parallel account of these events in Mark chapter 11 tells us that Jesus wasn't even taking the donkey. He was borrowing it. He was adamant that after he was done with it, he would, he would return it immediately. And yet, in arriving in precisely this way, it turns out that Jesus was confirming his kingship of this heavenly kingdom that he was always going on about. Look at verses 4 and 5. All of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Which prophet? Zechariah. And indeed, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we find the following account. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey and a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah's ministry was meant to spur on some Israelites 
who were really bummed out. Earlier I talked about a heavy week. They'd experienced heavy decades, including 70 years of exile in Babylon, only, if you can believe this, to return to Jerusalem and find it essentially destroyed, including the temple. And then by Zechariah's day, so now we're talking 20 years after that, the city still wasn't completely rebuilt. The temple rebuild project was moving along at about the rate the construction projects move today. They'd only rebuilt the foundation. And taxes were high. Which makes, think about this, it makes Zechariah's prophecy here in chapter 9 somewhat surprising, doesn't it? It's, it's, not, it's not, you know, cheer up everybody, your external circumstances will improve any day now. I have it on good authority that the Persians are about to cut taxes in half. It's not that. Instead, it's, it's more future-oriented. In the timeline, it's not entirely clear. Rejoice, Israelites, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. I mean, shoot, for all I know, the difficulties, Israelites, that you're experiencing might get even more difficult. But the king is coming. So keep going, keep building, keep trusting. There is a rest in store for you. I am telling you, the thing that you really did not want to be in the Old Testament, or really in the entire Bible, was a prophet. And this is kind of mild compared to some of the things that other prophets had to go through. In this case, Zechariah, I mean, gosh, he's, he's kind of like a 911 operator giving really vague information. You know, it's like, when will the fire department be here to put out my car fire? Oh, they're coming. <laughs> they're coming, all right. They're on their way. Yes, but when? They're definitely coming. And when they come, they will bring water, praise God. I was also reminded of my high school's, God bless them, cheerleading team, which was tasked every Friday night with being really fired up, even as the football team behind it was being abused by a foreign power. (laughs) Primary cheer. I saw every one of those games my four years of high school because I was in the drum line. Notice I didn't say band, and we had an attitude about that, let me tell you. And the primary cheer that they cheered was something like, we rock this house, what, what, this house, something of that nature. And yet, we were not rocking the house at all. We were down like 59 to zero. But then, to Zachariah's credit, Really, to God's credit, because Zechariah was just the messenger, about, you know, 600 or so years later, the king came. Thus, the reference to Zechariah's prophecy here in Matthew chapter 21, as Jesus approached Jerusalem. It's this neon sign confirming Jesus' Davidic kingship. And I say confirming because Matthew actually gives plenty of evidence to this effect long before chapter 21. The take-home point and the genealogy we find at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1 is Jesus is the long-awaited king in the line of David. 
That'll preach. And then, why does Jesus have the audacity to tell people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Matthew chapter 4. It's at hand because he's the king. I mean, so it's, it's very much at hand. And here's one more piece of evidence just for fun. To get to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled through the, the Kidron Valley. The references to, in verse 1 to Bethphage and, and the Mount of Olives point to this. You can see this more clearly if you ever look at a map. So what? Here's what. This is actually the second account in the Bible of a king traveling through the Kidron Valley and arriving at Jerusalem on a donkey. Seriously. The first was King Solomon, who was paraded into Jerusalem by his dad, that would be King David, in response to a challenge by the family rival to the Davidic throne. So in parading Solomon into Jerusalem, Jerusalem here on the, on the royal mule, King David was effectively announcing, this son of mine is the true heir. All others attempting to claim the throne are illegitimate. Knowing this, the Bible is great, isn't it? Knowing this, it really looks like God the Father paraded Jesus into Jerusalem on a donkey colt to make an announcement that his son is the true king above all others. All other challengers are illegitimate. And Matthew Westerholm puts it like this, Jesus' arrival at Jerusalem was a testimony that the religious leaders who opposed him were phonies and that Rome, with all of its military might, wasn't really in charge. When you're in the throes of suffering, including suffering catalyzed by unspeakable evil or, or natural causes or whatever, you may well find yourself asking the Twitter question that I mentioned earlier. What has God done for me? I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm really trying down here, and I'm trusting you, Lord. I'm pouring myself out for the benefit of other people, and now, and now this? If so, please, you can take that question right to God. You can take that question to God. He can handle it. So be honest with it. And take it to your community. Let other people lament and, and grieve and, and, and wrestle through this with you. In fact, it's actually not particularly healthy or helpful to move too quickly you know, into the hope department. It's, it's right to sit in things like this for a while and just be, be sad and sometimes even angry. But down the road, consider that the Father really has done something for us. He's given us His Son, Jesus, the King, which means the evil and death and suffering for all of their might aren't really in charge. And Jesus, church, is the king of an upside-down kingdom. And this is really important. 
which means that evil and death and suffering are not in charge, even when it looks like or feels like they're in charge. You know, if a little bit of a thought experiment, if Jesus had swept into Jerusalem in the traditional way, you know, on a war horse and, and, and taken out the Romans in a blaze of glory, Something, by the way, that Jews living under Roman occupation would have greatly appreciated and even kind of expected. If Jesus had, had done it that way, do you see that any kind of suffering experienced in the present day would be far more spiritually troubling? Uh, has, has the king somehow lost control now? Or, or does our suffering indicate that we're not part of his kingdom and, in fact, his adversaries? But Jesus rode into the gates of Jerusalem on a donkey and ultimately into a storm of suffering that led him to the cross. Which means that when we suffer, we're not all that surprised because the king himself suffered. And because the king told his disciples in the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, that they should anticipate various difficulties as they followed him, sometimes on account of following him. In church, it means that the king understands our suffering, even our wailing. Fairly or not, I'm sure I'm going to get an email from the Global Kings Association after this, I don't know, but fairly or not, kings are known for being aloof, and unable to really identify with the difficulties of their subjects because they're the king, they have the power and the money, they don't get their subjects. King Jesus is, I want you to know exactly the opposite, intimately present with his people and always able to sympathize. And you see how this gives us real hope, even in the face of real evil. Hope that keeps us moving and in living hope that keeps us interested in pursuing the kind of righteousness that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount instead of just collapsing into this heap of, of cynical paralysis. Hope that keeps us interested in loving our neighbors, trusting that, that goodness and and flourishing remain within these kinds of endeavors, even as we're hurting in other ways. Which is one of the most profound paradoxes unveiled by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You can anticipate great difficulties, but living righteously is still so worth it, and you will be blessed as you do so. Isn't that wild? That's Christianity. And then as we do so, we're trusting that we're still giving people glimpses of kingdom living and kingdom participation that points us to how the kingdom of heaven will be when we're finally and fully there. About this kingdom, though, especially the kingdom of heaven part, what's going on with that and, and what does that have to do with Jesus' kingship? and this hope we've been talking about. Here's a second, I would say, honestly, even greater reason why Palm Sunday keeps us going 
even more in the valley. The king brings salvation. He's coming with something. Even though Jesus rode into Jerusalem in the most upside-down kind of way, some still gathered to worship. Why? Because despite his very lowly entrance, they still believed that Jesus had come in some way to provide for them. They still believed that. They still believed that the arrival of he who comes in the name of the Lord, verse 9, was a big-time win. Thus this refrain that you get, Hosanna in the highest, which was effectively an announcement, it was a proclamation of Jesus' messianic identity and mission, as well as a plea for him to carry it out that they might be saved. What kind of people were a part of this celebratory gathering? It was most likely a gathering of Jesus' followers or disciples far broader than the 12 disciples we normally think of, plus some pilgrims, probably, who had traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. This was not a random gathering of Jerusalem residents. This was a gathering of Jesus' supporters and sympathizers who believed that he was up to something wonderful. Now, their, their messianic expectations, they were, they were off a bit. These supporters had gradually come to understand Jesus' identity and mission, but they continued to some degree to envision Jesus as, as more of a conquering king who would end Gentile, namely Roman, oppression. However, would you consider that they weren't actually overestimating the purpose of Jesus' arrival? They were actually underestimating his mission. The crowds were expecting emancipation from oppressive Roman rule, but Jesus had, you see how he had a much greater provision in mind? He had come to liberate the people of God from the chains of sin and the chains of death. Which brings us back to verse 5 of Matthew chapter 21. Matthew's reference to Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. And at this stage, the value of taking the time to read that Zechariah passage becomes clear, seeing that it's actually explicit about something that Matthew only chose to imply. The king who was coming was righteous. And you know, he was bringing salvation. This salvation is not less than freedom from oppression. Jesus hints at this when he talks about the disciples anticipating a great reward in the kingdom of heaven, Matthew chapter 5 verse 12. And you know that reward it wouldn't be all that rewarding if it was something like, well, you know, in the kingdom of heaven, you'll still be under oppressive Roman rule, but you'll have really nice rainfall shower heads. Am I right? That'll be nice. And then in the book of Revelation, which, by the way, includes all sorts of allusions to the book of Zechariah, we have remarkable descriptions in Revelation 21 concerning the kingdom place, the new Jerusalem. There will be no more sea. Some of you love the beach, so it's like, well, okay. There will be no more sea, basically meaning the end of chaos. Because Israel associated the sea with all sorts of chaos. 
including threats from their enemies. And there would no longer be any death, no longer be any mourning, no longer be any crying, no more pain, no more of these excruciating news breaks. Zechariah didn't give details about the timeline. And you know, Jesus didn't either, instead warning his disciples that life would continue to be a bit difficult for a while, and that even he didn't have dates to hand out. But according to Zechariah and according to Jesus, eventually those difficulties would come to an end. Because the king is coming and the king has salvation. It's not less than that, but actually, church, did you know that it's certainly more than that, too? Salvific, salvific rest for God's people also includes rest from the chaos of our sin. A vital need actually alluded to in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, in which Zechariah speaks. Check this out. Isn't this beautiful? Zechariah speaks of a fountain being opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Sin would have barred the house of David and all of us from the kingdom family. But the king was coming to deal with that too. And he was coming to deal with that on account of his own death and resurrection to make his people eternal members of God's kingdom family, endowed with Jesus' own righteousness. Check, th Check this out. Jesus entered the gates of Jerusalem. You can't make this up. He entered the gates of Jerusalem that we might enter the kingdom of heaven by the narrow gate that we talked about last week. A hard road for now that's filled with humbling ourselves before the Lord in repentance and with self-denial and with taking up our cross and sometimes tragedies that don't make any sense and sometimes even persecution. But those who trusted the king, no matter what unfolds in this life, will enter the kingdom. For now we wait on the king's return. But when he comes again, we will shout to one another, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We will shout that to, together with, with multitudes of people from everywhere in the entire world. And then the king will bring us through the gates of the new city, Jerusalem. Gates described in Revelation 21 as 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. For now we enter by a narrow gate along a very hard path. And did you know that Jesus also entered a gate and walked a very hard path? And one day he will return, and he will usher us through the gates of the new city of Jerusalem, but this time it won't be hard. It'll be beautiful. The gates will be like pearls and the streets will be like gold. So what has God done for us? He's prepared a new city. He continues to prepare it even now. 
that people who follow the king, though they may be defrauded in this life, though they may experience grave injustices in this life, will one day be made whole. And let me end with this. This is where Christianity gets wild. Some of you might be sitting here and thinking to yourselves, I'm kind of more on the side of the one who perpetrates the injustices. What about me? This new city is even for those who have acted unjustly if they humble themselves before the king and might experience his grace. All of this made possible by the king who experienced the greatest injustice in the history of the world. Amen. I'm going to do something.